You're listening to Technically 200, a podcast about some amazing Black and Latino women in STEM. This new season, in honor of Black History Month, we're celebrating the stories of Black women in STEM. Stay tuned each week for interviews and roundtable conversations because we'll be talking to women in tech, entrepreneurship, finance, and much, much more. My name is Matt Stevenson. I am the host of Technically 200, and I am so excited to welcome our esteemed guest, Jessica Odeyemi. She is not only a Code to College volunteer, but she's also a senior product manager at IBM. Jessica, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You, you and I, we spoke... Uh, we were just talking about this, but we spoke about a year ago, maybe more, um, about just the concept of launching a podcast about Black and Latinx women in STEM. And you were my very first interview. And I'll, I'll tell you, honestly, I was even more excited about this podcast after speaking with you. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm happy that I could inspire some of that excitement. You just have such a unique story to share, and I'm excited to to highlight it today. So I'm just going to walk through some of the, the vitals. So you got your Bachelor's of Science in Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering from Princeton. Is that right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Off target school. And then you got your MBA at Fuqua, <laughs> Duke University, yep. right? That's right. Yeah. After spending... About seven years um, working, I decided to, to make a little bit of a shift and went back to, to business school to help me do that. Excellent. Yep. So, so talk to us about your, and that was, that was uh, I mean, I think maybe Jessica didn't catch it, but Princeton is not an off-target school. So for, for, those, of you, <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who may think, oh, well, but it's in Jersey, right? It's like, no, Princeton is a, it's, a, it's an excellent school. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. It's all right. So, how did you make the decision to go into mechanical and aerospace engineering? Mm. And also, if you could weave in, where do you find the passion for engineering in the first place? Yeah, man. Okay. So, I think finding the passion and finding the confidence actually probably goes all the way back to second grade even. So I'll, I'll start kind of like right before I made that decision and then, and then talk a little bit about the journey there. So actually, interestingly enough, I thought I was going to be a lawyer <laughs> um, after graduating from college. I wanted to go to law school. And so I started thinking about, well, what is it that people who go to law school major in and, you know, being just kind of doing my research and asking around um, in college. And I realized, well, there wasn't really any particular major that you had to choose. Um, and so I started thinking about the things that I was good at and the things that interested me. And I thought, well, I'm pretty good at math and science. And I like figuring out how things work and taking things apart. I was really interested in flight. And so I decided that mechanical and aerospace engineering made sense. And quite frankly, I wasn't sure yet. When I, when I tell people that, 
you know, they're kind of surprised. I, I really wasn't sure exactly how those things were going to get combined. Right. Or like, you know, why I just knew that I was interested in, in those things. So, so I decided to start there as far as kind of going back a step. I wanted to say this, because I think this is like a really, it was a really important point, I think in my development, how I, why I thought I was good at math and science. And so quite honestly, it goes back to a second grade teacher that I had, Ann Barwell, I'm going to shout her out, because we were learning simple math facts, like addition and subtraction and, and multiplication and division. And I just really latched onto that. And she made a big deal about it, made a big deal about, you know, giving me praise and props for, for being able to do that well. And it seems like a small thing, but literally, I think from that point on is when in my head, I said, oh, I'm good at math and science. And of course, you know, things got harder and harder. It was no longer addition and subtraction. It was um, calculus and linear algebra and multivariable calculus. <laughs> uh, but honestly, I think that my thought that I was good at math came from, you know, being told that. <laughs> so I thought that was really like a really important thing for me to have and just kind of internalize. Yeah. So that's how I got to, to mechanical and aerospace engineering at Princeton. I find it fascinating that you mentioned that somebody told you that you were good at math. And so you believed it and yeah. it became this self-fulfilling prophecy that you were just going to be good at math. So what did sure. that positive feedback loop look like as you, as you think back to yeah. grade school, middle school, high school? I think it made me interested in, I think, like other extracurricular programs and activities that I don't think I would have had the confidence to pursue had it not been for, for kind of that internalized, you know, reinforcement. So for example, I really ended up, I ended up getting into these summer programs. There was a summer program called Houston Prep, and it was essentially taking college courses at U of H downtown, I think in middle school. And that was really interesting to me. And uh, even getting involved in, in certain clubs at school. So I decided to get into the engineering academy um, which is like a magnet program at my high school. And again, the, the reason I had the confidence to do that is because, you know, I've been telling myself, oh, I've been good at math. And if you think you're good at math and you put yourself out there to, to try mathy things and, and that just kind of reinforces your exposure to, you know, mathematical concepts, which actually makes you better at math. I was also on the robotics team at um, in high school. Uh, again, I don't think I would have had that confidence, you know, had I not kind of already internalized, I'm good at these things, I can do these things. I think the other thing, a lot of, oh, I think a lot of students and certainly like me growing up were told that math is the hard thing. So I think the other piece of that is it gave me confidence to try, you know, to put myself out there in other ways and, and try 
other clubs and activities because in my head, if I could do this thing that people thought was really hard, then I felt, you know, I could do anything else, right? Because I had conquered the hard thing, which is why, you know, I, I think STEM education is, is so important because it gives you confidence to do other things. What's fascinating to me about your background is that you, you didn't start as a technical product manager. You didn't start at IBM. And I think most people falsely believe that careers are linear. Um, yours certainly wasn't. And I mean, you started out by working in an oil field. Isn't that right? Yeah, I, I did. I had a very um, non, non-linear path to uh, product management and to tech. So yeah, I did start out um, working in the oil industry. And as a matter of fact, even getting there was a little bit nonlinear. I originally thought that I wanted to go to law school. Uh, and so my plan was to work for a few years and then go to law school after I had saved up some money. And so I had an internship uh, a company called Schlumberger came to do an info session and it sounded really attractive to me because it wasn't my kind of traditional view of engineering at the time, which was that I'd be working at a desk or in a cubicle somewhere. Um, and so it seemed really interesting because, you know, I could actually be on location and kind of put my hands on things and see the impact of what I was doing um, in real time. And so I had an internship with Schlumberger and I ended up loving it. So I decided to work for them uh, full time. Fast forward uh, a couple of years and, you know, I had friends that started going to law school and who were graduating law school and, and actually becoming lawyers. And I think I got a little bit more of an idea of what it meant to actually be a lawyer. And um it didn't really match up with, with my expectations or, or what I wanted to do. So I decided to, to kind of stay in the oil field. And while I was there, um, I had, you know, some curiosity to kind of work in a few different environments. So initially I started off as a freight engineer in Germany. I worked in Midland, Texas. Um, and, and when I was working for Schlumberger, uh, the way you can think of it is companies oil companies like Chevron, Exxon's, and the Shells of the world will hire out um, service partners or vendors like Schlumberger uh, to do kind of specific pieces of, of work for them. And I was doing, um, I was doing fracking. And I started to get a little bit more curious because I, I thought, you know, there's a lot that happens before I get to this location and a lot that happens after I leave this location. And that kind of led me to, to say, okay, well, I wonder what it's like to be on the other side to actually, you know, work for Chevron and get to see kind of the full breadth of, of all of the operations. Um, and that led me to Chevron. And then while I was there, I kind of kept asking more questions like, okay, you know, this is what this operation looks like in Midland, Texas. What does it look like? in other parts of the US? What does it look like in other parts of the world? And so that led me to be a drilling engineer in Angola. I think it was in Angola where I got exposed to a lot of different 
technologies. It's, it's um, one of the areas of the world where drilling is really complex. And so, you know, I kind of kept, it's kind of a series of questions that I kept asking myself. I asked myself, well, you know, we put all these really complex technologies, you know, down hole when we're, when we're drilling. But I started to kind of look around at, at the full spectrum of what we were doing. And I kind of noticed that we had some really antiquated software that we were using. And so I worked on, you know, a couple of projects to make my life easier uh, as a drilling engineer. And I think that was probably my first foray into tech. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed the idea and I, I didn't know that it was product management at the time, but I enjoyed the idea of making my life and the life of other drilling engineers easier. And I figured, you know, that this is probably a career. I didn't have a name for it yet, but um, this is probably something I want to explore more. And so when I went back to business school, I, I didn't know what role I'd be going into, but I had a pretty strong feeling that I would be going into the tech industry. Um, and product management in particular seemed like a really good place to, to start if I could, because um, just kind of speaking with other product managers and getting an idea of their day-to-day -day activities, I realized that you know they had to work with development teams, they had to work with legal teams, they had to work with marketing and all these different functions within a company. And so I figured this was probably a good place to start um, my tech, my career in the tech industry. So yeah, I, I honestly, I did not envision that I would be a product manager at IBM when, you know, I started working for Schlumberger, right? Or when I first graduated from school. But I think what led me here, if I look back, was continuing to ask questions about what was going on around me um, instead of just kind of siloing in and focusing in on my one job function. I, I always, you know, made it a point to ask questions and, and kind of understand what some of the adjacent and related functions were. And so what it sounds like is though, if we were to map out your trajectory these individual points or roles would seem, as we said before, not linear at all. If you were going to connect them, there would be some curves and squiggles, but the actual thought process behind them, it sounds like they were pretty involved. So can you walk me through how you make that decision to go to business school? Because I know for, mm -hmm. Depending on the professional, it could be a you know hundred hundred fifty thousand dollar reset button. For other folks, yeah. it's the key to breaking the glass ceiling or a check the box. So, how did you make that decision to to pursue an MBA? Oh, that's a great question um, because you know when I went back to school and, and and while I was in school and even today, a lot of people ask me, you know, should I get an MBA? Um, and my answer is kind of the answer that I would probably give um, 
to anyone get you know for try thinking about pursuing an MBA, but also to to anyone thinking about their next step, which is really understanding or trying to understand, you know, asking the question um, and answering that for yourself. What is this going to do for me uh, in my career? And and it's not an easy question to answer by any means, but I think um, I think sometimes. Uh, people, this is certainly true uh, for MBAs and I think true for other advanced degrees. I think sometimes um, it's really important to, even if that plan changes, to have some sort of a plan or some sort of a thought process of, of how this particular step will help you. Because I think a lot of people get an MBA because you know, it's the thing to do, or it seems like the thing to do. And so I I always ask people, you know, is your goal to move up in your current company? Is your goal to break into a different industry or, or, or career function? Um, and I think those are important questions to answer because, um, that not only affects, you know, if you would go back to get a certain advanced degree or an MBA, but also, you know, what kinds of schools you should target or, you know, what kinds of programs you should target if that's part-time or, or full-time. So I know there's a lot wrapped up in that. Um, I think the first place to start is to look at people who have gotten MBAs or, you know, depending on your case, um, whatever the, the, that next step is, you know, if it's an advanced degree or, or whatever it may be, and literally start talking to people and start asking people um, about their career paths and what they plan to do next, what they did previously, what other options were available to them. I think that's a really important exercise to start to ask questions of the people who, you know, seem to be headed in the direction you'd like to go um, because it can start to formulate a picture, you know, no, no one person, I think has the formula that they can give you, like follow, you know, these steps and, and, and you'll get to this place, especially when it comes to career, but there are patterns. Um, and, and I think if you survey, um, even informally, right. And talk to enough, enough people, who are doing an MBA, for example, you start to get an, a feel for what kinds of transitions they made and what kinds of career opportunities are available to you um, after, after an MBA. And so that's what I started to do. Um, I also want to make another point because you, you mentioned that um, it is an investment, right? Like particularly if you're working, <laughs> um, you're giving up, you know, if you do like a full-time program, you're giving up two years of income and you're also, you know, paying to go to school. <laughs> um, so the other, I guess the other piece with that is doing it at the right time for you. It sounds like that really rounded you out and prepared you for, for where you are today. And there's this yeah. quote that I, not well, it's not a quote, it's a conversation that I had with this um, this white male, uh, successful white male in tech who said, um, 
we don't see blacks in startups because blacks are risk averse which Oof. i which was <laughs> which i thought was yeah. it was a loaded comment and i i didn't want to i my first response wasn't to be offended it was to really dig in because i think it's it's a very simplistic um assertion to make i i'd love to hear your thoughts on that on Oof. on blacks and risk aversion and uh just what what it looks like for their representation of blacks in tech because of risk it's one of those things where um i think exposure is everything and i think exposure is kind of like compound interest <laughs> that like if you don't have it then you know, like kind of that that path will continue to, you know, take you down. It, you'll go down, you know, further and further down the per one particular path if you do have it, right? Like it's just kind of this big network effect of being exposed to this and then you meet this person and then you get this opportunity and then you get exposed to, you know, a bunch of different people and opportunities. And I think about um, entrepreneurship that way, particularly because I think Black people, I think we culturally, that this is starting to shift, but I think we have a certain notion of what success looks like. I think that... Um, there are certain parts of, you know, our community uh, that don't have exposure um, and have, you know, kind of um, certain notions of, of what success looks like. Um, and I think, you know, if I think about, I, I mean, my story in particular, there was a time where, you know, I thought checking certain boxes like doing well in school and, you know, going to an Ivy League school and getting a job at a Fortune 500 company. I thought that that was my definition of success um, at one point. And, and, and I do think it still plays into my definition of success. I'm, you know, happy to have done um, all of those things. But I think exposure to success outside of those confines is um, really important. And it's not something that everyone has. Um, and it's not something that uh, I necessarily had until somewhat recently. Um, and it's interesting too, because I think that looks different um, for many people in the States than it does you know, on the continent of Africa, for example. So like I'm half Nigerian, um, you know, some of the first really successful black female entrepreneurs that I um, got to know and, and kind of got introduced to um, are, you know, Nigerian. Um, and so I think, I think the concept of ownership and entrepreneurship is um, a really complex one and, and one that um, one that is 
really nuanced kind of depending on geography and, and depending on your exposure and, and kind of what you grew up with. So I'll say this, um, I'll give this example. So when I, um, <laughs> so I, I worked for, for an oil company um, after school and, and, you know, it was a great gig. I got to travel all over the world and um, I was working for this company that was paying me really well. And quite frankly, when I decided to go back to school and um, get my MBA, um, you know, some people in my family were confused um, <laughs> because they were like, well, you have this like great job. Why would you leave to go back to school and, you know, pay to go to school and, and, you know, not, not work for, for two years. Um, and so the only way that I think I could calculate in my head that that made sense for me was because I had had, um, you know, exposure to people who had been down that path. Um, I think entrepreneurship is, is, um, is kind of the same way, kind of going back to your question, um, of, you know, the, the quote you mentioned that black people are risk averse. Like, I, I don't think that's true. What I think is true is that certain people within the black community, within our community have exposure and opportunities and, and certain don't, certain people don't. Right. I think risk averse as a concept, it helps to be risk averse, uh, quote unquote, if you have a safety net, <laughs> or to be to be you know w willing to tolerate risk if you have a safety net, um, which a lot of people in our community don't have. Um, it helps to be more risk tolerant um, if there's some sort of inheritance for you after the fact. It helps to be more risk tolerant if you've seen this modeled before in your family or close circle of friends, right? So I I don't think it's that we're um, risk averse so much as, you know, what sort of, um, exposure and opportunities we've had, which, I mean, we could talk about this all day, but that's super path dependent, right? Like historically. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't agree with the statement that we're risk averse. Um, what I think it is, is that, we don't necessarily have the same opportunities and, and access and exposure as other groups. And so, so much of that is changing, I, I hope, or at least the barriers to entry for some of those access and exposure opportunities. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that the, the barriers are getting lower and lower. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you think the tides are changing, the barriers are lowering, and if not, what are some things that we can do to, to make that happen? Yeah. So the good news, I do think the tides are changing. I don't think the tides are changing quickly enough. Um, and that's because I think that there are a lot of programs aimed at, you know, generally um, helping uh, minority and, and, you know, underprivileged students. Um, but I don't necessarily think um, those programs always are architected 
in the most efficient way. Um, and so to answer the second part of your question, which is, you know, what are some of the things that we can change? I think those programs have to be designed with kind of two or three pieces in mind. I think the first one is skills. So it's one thing to, um, you know, host a one-time event um, for a group of students or to give aid um, to students. I think it's a completely different thing to teach skills. Um, I think that's super important. Kind of the whole, you know, teaching someone to fish versus giving them a fish. Um, I think that's the first thing. And I think those skills don't operate in silo. There are a lot of really talented people, really talented black and brown students with the skills. It's the access. So it's having mentors. It's, you know, having um, people they can call up or text or just bounce ideas off of and, and get advice from who will then introduce them to people that they're interested in meeting in their desired field. It's all of that. It's, you know, introducing them to other students who look like them or other people who've been successful, um, who look like them in the real world and showing them that this, you know, career path or project is a possibility. Um, so I think, I think we aren't, I think the tides aren't changing as quickly as they could. I think um, we need to have more programs like Code to College <laughs> that are, kind of take a more holistic approach um, is probably the best way I can say it. And so talk to us about your involvement with Code to College. What what got you started and, yeah. and what are you up to these days? Yeah. Um, so what got me started? Um, you know, one of the things that I think I mentioned earlier is that I was really fortunate to have so many mentors along the way, um, both formal and informal people that didn't even, you know, they just thought they were having conversations with me, but looking back, right. I now have the language to know that they were mentors to me. Um, and I think there were programs that kind of fall into, um, the category that I was speaking before that were holistic, that gave me exposure um, and, and, and help me build skills. And so I honestly just feel like I have benefited so much from those programs and it's proof to me that they work, um, because I've seen, you know, either friends I've grown up with or, or people that I've known that haven't had the same access. And I, I've seen, firsthand and I'm living proof that, you know, they work, <laughs> um, things like this work. And so I, I definitely wanted to be a part of it. Um, and so when I first started Code to College, working with Code to College, um, I was a professional development mentor, which I, I still do now. Um, but I'm also really excited to be a vision 2024 technical mentor. Um, so that means that I am working with um, alumni of the program who are in, you know, college now and, and just kind of being there to answer questions and, and talk about specific topics and, um, and 
introduce, you know, I'm, I'm working with one young lady now and she's kind of, she's trying to figure out which career path uh, she wants to take within um, software engineering. And so, you know, I, we went through and made a list of kind of all her different interests and I'm introducing her to people in my network that are actually doing those things just so she can ask questions and get a feel for what their day-to-day is like and, um, you know, kind of figure out which path she wants to take. So I'm, I'm really enjoying that. That is fantastic. Um, I, I really admire the fact that you, along with all of our other volunteers have a day job yet spend the time to invest additional hours into youth who are super hungry and are trying to figure out what their paths could be and completely recognize that it made an impact on you. But I think it it says a lot about you that you're paying it forward. So we really do appreciate that you do that. Um, I, I'd love to hear just your thoughts on what another young lady such as yourself who is early career, who may not have had the level of access and exposure that you have had, maybe mm-hmm. she's mid-career, maybe she's early career, maybe she's in college and she she's hearing this and she thinks to herself, wow, I, I mean, it would be a dream to become an aerospace engineer, to work uh, for an oil company, to do any yeah. of the things that she's mentioned. If you could sit with her right now, what would you tell her to do to to course correct or to to reach that goal? I love that question. I do. Um, okay, so first of all, if there is anyone who's listening who's interested in, you know, a career in the oil industry or, um, you know, studying mechanical or aerospace engineering, like, reach out to me. (laughs) Like I'm happy. I'm always happy. You know, find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm always happy to answer questions. Literally. I I mean that with all my heart. Um, But, you know, for people who may have other interests that I don't know much about. um, So I did mention the, the notion of compound interest, you know, earlier, But the other piece of it is that it's never too late to start. So um, one thing that I think, you know, having access did teach me is that um, even when you don't have access, so to speak, in terms of like you don't necessarily have a direct link, uh, you'd be surprised how many people are willing to help you when you just do a cold reach out um, and ask very targeted questions um, or, you know, literally just want to talk to someone about their experiences. So I've done that before as well, um, a lot. <laughs> um, so, y- you know, you, every, not everyone will respond, um, but so many people will. And you, you really only need a couple of really good people Um to kind of start you off and start answering questions and um, introduce you to other people. If you think about it this way, right? If you reach out to 10 people and one person responds and that one person can introduce you to two other people and those two other people can introduce you to two more people. Um, so what I'm getting at is it's, it's never too 
late to start compounding. LinkedIn is has been my friend because <laughs> uh, I do realize that you know not everyone has a family member or you know someone in their friend circle who can make an introduction to, to someone they want to speak to. LinkedIn works, I promise. LinkedIn works. Um, attending conferences works. Um, I think that's a lot easier to do right now in particular because it's virtual. So you don't have to travel or, you know, pay money to travel anywhere or stay in a hotel anywhere. Um, joining extracurricular groups and volunteer organizations helps as well. Um, even joining groups that are not related at all. You'd be surprised how much you can, the type of people you meet, if you kind of start to do a survey and, and just get to know people and, and your um, kind of social uh, activity groups, I'll say. Um, and so I guess, you know, the advice I would give is it really just takes one person to start that compounding effect. And it's, it's definitely not too late. So could you share just what, what challenges have been thrown your way and how can I or anyone else listening learn from how you've addressed those challenges? Yeah. Oh man. So many, let me pick a couple. Um, yeah. Well, I definitely do not have it all together. Um, yeah, at any given moment, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on, especially now, going on um, all around me. And sometimes, uh, you know, I'm wondering, like, how I'm going to get through the week. Um, no, but I, I, I've had a lot of challenges. Um, I think maybe one that I can speak to. So my first job, uh, my first, like, serious job, out of college, um, I started working for um, an oil field company called Schlumberger, and I started working for them in Germany. Um, and I showed up a week before Christmas to a small town in Germany where I didn't know the language. Um, it was my first time out of the U.S. I had just recently gotten a passport. It was my first time ever traveling outside of the States. And I showed up for work. Um, and the interesting thing is um, kind of when you first start as a field engineer for Schlumberger, you don't quite know enough to be like effective as an engineer. So you kind of have to go and learn um, all the equipment and how things work outside um, and so I was attempting to do that, but it was really hard for me to communicate with, um, you know, the guys that worked in the field. And I just remember thinking, I'm not going to be able to see my family for Christmas. I'm in this country where I don't know anybody. I don't speak the language. I can't even like learn what I'm supposed to learn because I can't communicate. I can't, you know, I, I don't know what to do. And I literally went behind one of the water tanks and just cried. And I'm like, what am I doing in this place? Like, what, like, why did I think this was going to work? Um, and that happened for 
a little bit. <laughs> that was a daily occurrence uh, for a little bit until um, one day I literally said, you know what? Um, how can I be helpful? <laughs> and how can I like kind of turn this situation around? Um, and one thing I noticed that the guys were doing every day was like, shoveling this is gonna sound really weird i i noticed that they were shoveling snow every day and so i was like okay well i'm gonna just like try to help out and do that um it, granted right like i was supposed to be you know an engineer and you know this industry and doing all these things but um i decided this is how i can start to be helpful um and as small as it sounds like it, they really appreciated that there was this person who was like trying to help. Um, and little by little, they, sh they started showing me, you know, pointing out like how to do this and how to do that. And, you know, um, making an effort to um, teach me kind of all the workings of, of everything in the field. Um, and I learned it. And, um, you know, I, 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 I look back on that and I think about that. And I, I think the kind of the lesson that I can take from that is there are times where it's going to be really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, I was super uncomfortable. And so, um, it might not be shoveling snow <laughs> at the beginning or, you know, anything like that, but there's always some way you can add value, I think is, you know, the point I'm trying to make. There's always, however small it may seem, uh, some way you can add value. And I think that when you do that, people are willing to teach you stuff and willing to guide you if you um, can make, you know, their lives easier. Um, I think another thing that I can share is the position I'm in right now. <laughs> um, so, I moved to a new team a few months ago. I moved to my current team a few months ago. And quite honestly, it's a huge learning curve for me. So while I feel technical, um, I don't have a computer science background or a software engineering background. Um, and this role that I'm in is quite a bit more technical than um, my previous roles have been. And literally every day there's a new term that I realize I don't understand. Um, and sometimes it gets super overwhelming. There've been so many times where I've been like, you know, I've kind of felt like that imposter syndrome where I feel like, Oh man, like any day people are gonna, you know, realize that I don't know everything I'm supposed to know. Um, and so again, you know, I just kind of go back to the idea of being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, if you are pushing yourself continuously, I, I think that that'll keep happening. You will probably, every time you move to a new role or a new challenge, you're going to be uncomfortable. And so being okay with that and, and kind of, you know, being confident enough to, to say, I might not know it but I can figure out how to learn it, um, I think is a skill to be 
developed. And I, it's one I have to remind myself of all the time, which is they hired from me for this job for a reason. Um, I have all of the tools in my toolbox to eventually figure out this problem, eventually figure out this domain. Um, and so that's how I've, I've handled it. So, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, I've, I've spoken to people who are way higher up the food chain um, than I am. And I, I don't think that ever goes away. So I, I don't think that for anyone that you think has it all together um, or seems, you know, untouchable, they don't. And they, they go through the same thoughts, you know, and the same kind of process of being uncomfortable at times. And if they don't go through that, then something's wrong, uh, I think. <laughs> so you have so many great quotes there between being comfortable with being uncomfortable and the fact that no one is untouchable, that we are all going through those same thoughts of self-doubt. I love it. Thank Absolutely. you so much, Jessica Odeyemi, yeah. for your time. Thank you as for having me. Absolutely. We would love to have you back sometime. I'd love to be back anytime. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Technically 200. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Technically 200. Don't forget to subscribe and visit us at technically200.com. Until next time.